Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 163 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Whew, I'm tired. We did a little book rearranging at the Gentleman Callers last night, and like my shoulders are a little sore, and we stirred up a little dust, so my throat's scratchy. <laughs> But we got it done. Awesome. Looks good. Yeah. New bookcase. Rearranged all the books. I have a public service announcement. Part of what created this kerfuffle is we needed to have a little work done on the cable. And the cable cord came into the wall where the bookcase was located. (laughs) So we had to quickly pull off all the books and throw them on the floor. Oh, wow. Okay. So that they could get to the cable. Yeah, that's a kerfuffle. Yeah, it was a kerfuffle. And then the books needed to be put back, and we decided it was time to get a new bookcase and go. So, well, see, look at that. Silver lining. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We so appreciate your contributions. It really helps us pay for the cost of the podcast. Thank you very much. And we wanted to give a special shout out to Lisa in Stamford, who was the winner of a copy of Atomic Anna by Rachel Barenbaum. We did a Patreon only giveaway this month for everyone who's part of our newsletter subscription. We do a giveaway every 10th episode, but we're also starting something new with our Patreons, which is a giveaway every month of a book. Yes. Yeah. So we're excited about that. And just reminder to the newsletter is completely free. And you can do that at bookhoogers.com. And then the link to our Patreon page is there as well. And we appreciate your contributions. And if you can't, don't want to, it's not your thing to contribute financially and you want to help us out, spread the word. Tell a friend about the Book Cougars or share us on social media, something like that, just to help spread the book love. That's right. We would love it. So, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading A Ghost of Caribou by Alice Henderson. Woo, woo. So excited. This is the new Alex Carter book in her series. It doesn't come out until November 15th. Uh, we got an early digital copy. Thank you from Nick Alley and William Morrow for that. And as soon as that approval plopped in, I started reading it the next day. And she shot me an email too or a text. I was so excited. <laughs> and then I think we were together when we got the email saying, You've been approved. So it was a joint celebration. Joint celebration for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I'm halfway into it. It's really fantastic. I really enjoy the character Alex Carter. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we've talked about Alice's first two books in this series. It features a wildlife biologist who works in the field assessing the populations of different animals. So the first one dealt with wolverines, the second with polar bears, And this one with caribou. Very cool. Yeah, and Alex Carter is a woman, just to clarify. Badass. Total badass out there camping by herself when there's a known potential serial killer situation out there. Wow. Yeah. It's going to make me feel less, you know, squiggy when I hear a little sound in the night (laughs) when I'm laying in bed. But I I just really (laughs) like it. So if you like the, the great outdoors, animals camping, just being outside, definitely check out the Alex Carter series by Alice Henderson. I'm still listening to The Electricity of Every Living Thing by Catherine May. She narrates. This is the memoir that deals with Catherine coming to terms with her diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. She starts to take a walk on the Southwest Coast Path, which is in England. And she describes it as a difficult, craggy, and bloody-minded walking route. It's a metaphor 
for also being diagnosed with Asperger's and trying to reconcile um, her life to that point. She's now 39. And oh, these are the things I've been trying to assess and handle without really understanding why they're difficult for me. Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying it. And she's doing a great job narrating. And she's funny, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I mean, diagnosis is so important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can help so many things click into place and yes. to get the support you need. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting having met her. She talks so much about her husband and her son. They're just all delightful. And you can tell that part of that's because they've grown as a family together and really support each other. And that's very clear in this memoir. Nice. Again, that was called The Electricity of Every Living Thing by Catherine Mays. Well, I'm also reading, and I just really started at Young Mr. X by Elizabeth Jordan. It's a novel that came out in 1933. I'll talk more about that in our Biblio Adventure segment. Right on. I'm reading Small World by Laura Zygman. Chris was kind of apologetic about one of her books coming out in November. This comes out in January 2023. Laura Zygman is the author of Separation Anxiety, which was one of my favorite books in 20, probably. She's very funny and irreverent. This, too, is a novel. This book is about two sisters, Joyce and Lydia, who are both recently divorced and move in together because Lydia, after 30 years in L.A., moves back to the Boston area. They become roommates, and they start to delve into their history where they had a third sister who was at the time called retarded. Now we would refer to somebody as developmentally delayed and was put in a home for children and died of the flu. And as often happens in families, secrets are kept or truths just aren't talked about. I'm just barely started it, but even with those heavy subjects, it still has Laura Zygmunt's wit and humor. Again, it's called Small World by Laura Zygmunt out January 10th. In the interim, you could read Separation Anxiety. (laughs) Well, what have you just read? I finished Elizabeth Strout's O. William and Lucy by the Sea. For those who listened to the last episode, I was like, sure, I can read these books out of order. Well, no, I couldn't. (laughs) Chris was even giving me pep talks about it, but I was just little bit into Lucy by the Sea, and I was like, wait a minute, she's referring to things I don't know. So I went and got O. William. O. William is the third book in the Amgash series that started with My Name is Lucy Barton. And this has Lucy still and her husband, William, who was referred to in the other books, but he's now quite the main character in this one. And he is in his second or third marriage. I think it's his second, doesn't matter has had a child, is married, and he and Lucy are still very much friendly. Their two children they had together are grown women. Everybody's in Manhattan. It really just deals with their lives and William's life with his other child. And in classic Elizabeth Strout form, very short sentences, very precise, funny. It's about relationships and how people interact with each other. And I really, really loved it. Oh, one of the things that it deals with is that William's from Maine and his father was a German POW and worked on a potato farm. And he ended up running off with his mother who was married and had another child at the time. 
So all of that comes out in the wash, so to speak, in O. William. And then Lucy by the Sea, which comes out on September 20th and is the fourth book in the Amgash series, takes place during the pandemic. Lucy and William, who's now divorced from his wife, head up to Maine and sit out the pandemic in Maine. The two daughters are still in Connecticut slash New York City. That's where they are for the pandemic. And again, it's about their relationships, how they're handling the pandemic, how relationships ebb and flow during the pandemic, which we're all quite aware of at this point in our lives. Lucy and William decide to permanently relocate to Maine, which is shocking to their daughters because Lucy's always been such a Manhattanite. And reminder, too, she is a writer. The character of Lucy is an author. So there's a little bit of meta stuff about that as well as she talks about her writing. Other characters are introduced more about just basic relationships. And same thing with Elizabeth Strout's just perfection in her sentences. I loved both of the books. Lucy by the Sea is very Maine. So if you love Maine, as Olive Kittredge was in Maine... Elizabeth Strout is from Maine and has now, in her own personal life, moved back. So there was a little bit of, I think, autobiography happening in this one because she, too, relocated with her husband during the pandemic to Maine. So those were O. William and Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout. O. William is out now. Lucy by the Sea is out next month on the 20th. Nice. Now, Lucy Barton, wasn't she originally from Illinois? Mm-hmm. Okay. The character William is the one that's from Maine. Okay her husband slash ex-husband, but Elizabeth Strout in real life is from Maine. Okay. But yes, and Lucy Barton is very Midwestern. She had a very sad life where she didn't have much connection to her family. She is estranged from her mother and mostly from her family. So it's very interesting. A lot of it is her thinking about how to be a mother to these two daughters that she has with her own deficits as a child slash her relationship with her own mother. Yeah. Well, I read The Barons, which is a novel by Kurt Johnson and Ellie Johnson, a father and daughter team. And this was a book that I saw Karen share on Instagram at Barker for Books is her handle. And she had said, this is kind of reminiscent in some ways of Peter Heller's The River. So The Barons is about two women who are lovers. They're in college who go off to canoe the Thelon River in Canada. It's like a 450-mile trip way up north, past Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, way up there. So it's Holly, who comes from a wealthy family. She's always going off and doing whatever she wants to do. Price is never an issue from Minnesota, I believe. And then Lee is the other woman. And it's primarily Lee's story. She grew up in a very different situation with a father. The mother took off when Lee was very young. The father was an eco-anarchist character. They actually lived in a basement of a house. So a foundation had been built on this land that he purchased. The house is never built, but they made the basement area their home. So really trying situation. The father obviously loved her a lot and did his best, but he had very strong opinions and was very inflexible. So her childhood was quite different. So these two meet up in college. That's one of the cool things about college or 
joining the military or going off anywhere when you're that age, you meet different people and your world expands, hopefully. So they do this trip. Holly had gone on this river trip before with a group. So she's a pretty much skilled canoeist. Lee is not a skilled canoeist. Yikes. So they take this trip alone. It's the type of situation where you have to take a little biplane with the canoe strapped <laughs> to the wheels to get up there. And the man who drops them off says, did you file a plan? These are permitted situations. They, they didn't. So right from the get-go, Holly, who has all this outdoor experience, kind of didn't do the right things. And this is not too much of a spoiler at all. She dies early on in the book. Oh, wow. She's, I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> yes. She's taken a selfie and she falls off a cliff. It happens so much. I mean, there was just a midshipman at the Coast Guard Academy who fell off of a cliff on vacation and died. And this happens a lot when people spend a lot of time outdoors. Accidents happen, even with people who have a lot of experience. The bulk of the story is Lee dealing with Holly's dead body and trying to transport her 450 miles down this river that has some serious rapids. So there's portage situations that have to happen with all the packs and the canoe and Holly's dead body. So it's a lot of Lee reflecting on her life. And it's set up early on that she's a storyteller, that she tells stories. So she's reflecting on her life, her father, who's now in prison, Holly and their relationship. I thought it was a really, really cool story. It has that adventure element. It's also a coming of age novel. And then this tragic love story. The only thing that annoyed the hell out of me was at one point, I think it was the character Holly who said, let's have a baby that would complete us. Mm. Oh my God. Like, I understand that sentiment, but I just know how messed up that can be as a reason for having a baby and that it's often coming at a time when couples are starting to get a little bored with each other. Mm. Like, hey, maybe we should break up. Anyway, I'm not saying that, (laughs) I'm not saying that was their situation, but that was one of those things that's like, ugh. But I wanted to ask you about this. I had never heard about using sugar as a natural preservative that kills bacteria if you have a wound. I've heard of it with honey. Yeah, honey is an option. Yeah. yeah. Not with granulated sugar. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's what well, that's what she used. And oh. I think she also mm. mentions honey because she gets at Lee gets a cut on her forehead. Mm. It's pretty deep. And so yeah. she you know. I've definitely heard of it with honey, but mm-hmm. not with just granulated sugar. Hmm, yeah. That's interesting. Fascinating. Never heard yeah. about that. So Ellie Johnson and Kurt Johnson, they wrote this together. I guess Kurt is a writer by trade and Ellie was in college taking a creative writing class or an English class of some kind. She's an English major. And I think this started as a short story. And then through talking about it, it kind of expanded over the years into this. Really enjoyed it. And I would recommend it to people who like adventure stories that also have a lot of personal reflection and growth in it. Again, that's The Barons by Kurt Johnson and Ellie Johnson. I... Finished Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. I don't know if you remember this on Books on the Nightstand. Michael Kindness used to call books, I think he used the term clutchworthy. (laughs) Is that what he would say? Where it's like, you just want to hug it. Oh my God, this book was so good. I originally heard about it on one of those Buzz Books panels in the winter Mm. before it came out. So I've talked about it tangentially a couple times on the podcast, just saying it's out. But now that it's out, I've started to see so many people talk about it. This is a debut novel by Shelley Van Pelt. And oh boy, I cannot wait to see what else she writes. 
It has a very unusual voice, which is Marcellus, who is a giant Pacific octopus. It's told from three different kind of people's points of view, Marcellus, and then Tova, who is a widow and also a mother who's lost her son unexpectedly, Eric. At the age of 18, he was set to head off to college, was working his summer job, took off in a boat one night and disappeared. And there was never really any closure. His body was never found. I mean, there's no doubt that he's dead, but there's just not been that closure for her. And then a young man, Cameron, who's 30, who's kind of trying to find his way. And he had a mother who left him when he was a young boy with her sister. So he was raised by his aunt, who is a wonderful woman who means well, but he still has kind of that missing piece in his heart of knowing that his mother and his father, who he doesn't have any idea who he is, abandoned him. So he sets off to find his father because his aunt hands him like a few little trinkets that his mother had left behind. And one of them is a school class ring and a picture. So he takes off to the Pacific Northwest to find who he thinks is his father and ends up in this small town where Tova, the widow, works at the local aquarium cleaning at night and has developed a lovely relationship with Marcellus, the octopus, who is kind of counting down his days because octopus only live so long. And they have a relationship with each other. He gets out of his tank at night and does little short adventures in the aquarium. And he's very smart. And he can look out of his tank and see things in the people who are watching him or the people who work at the aquarium that they may not be able to see. Mm. One of the things I loved about this book was there are short chapters. So Martellus, the octopus, comes in and there's like a countdown. You know his life is coming to an end. His chapters are very short. And then the other ones have great chapter titles, which is one of the things I love in a book. And I always got to the end of the chapter and have to flick back and say, how did she title this? And it always Mm. kind of made sense, you know, why Mm. it was there. But Cameron comes up to the Pacific Northwest looking for his father and ends up finding a family. It's not what you would expect. And all of these characters end up having things to do with each other that are unexpected. Hmm. And the aquarium is one of the key, kind of a character in the book. You know, that's where a lot of it takes place. It made me think about how much I love the Pacific Northwest. Shelby Van Pelt, the author, is originally from there. And you can tell in her writing, it's very much a character in the book as well. Mm. Very lovely book. Oh my gosh. It's just a feel-good book with some heart, a story that you're not quite sure where it's going. And it's a page turner in that way. There's a mystery, but it's not like a whodunit mystery. It's a how do they know each other There are also just some fun, lovely side characters. I loved every second of reading this book, and I highly recommend it. It's what I would also call, it's clutchworthy, huggable, and also a palate cleanser. So if you're just looking for a really readable book, I recommend this. Wow. That sounds very, very amazing and fascinating and different. Very different. Just really sweet book. Loved it. Again, it's called Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. And I can attest that Emily was clutching it at one point while she was talking. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll take a picture of me hugging it. (laughs) 
You know, that, that issue of when somebody dies and you don't have closure. Mm. When I was reading The Barons with Lee trying to transport Holly's body, you know, for her loved ones to have that closure and also a little bit of evidence that she didn't just, you know, kill her and bury her somewhere, probably. That got me thinking a lot because I'm often reading a lot of military stories or military ethics, just the issue of leaving a body behind, no one left behind. I sometimes have issues with that because sometimes people die trying to get that dead body back mm. or trying to get something off of that dead body to give the loved ones closure of some kind. And it's one of those issues that the barons help me kind of think about a little bit more and understand a little bit more. And it made me think about Into Thin Air mm. by John Krakauer, you know, about the 1996 deaths that happened climbing Mount Everest when they were just opening it up to like unskilled people doing this climbing and all the dead bodies that were left up there. Mm. Anyway, the mm. issue of closure mm. is one that I've been thinking a lot about lately in death and just how important it is. And I can't imagine, you know, Olivia Newton-John passed away recently, right? And I didn't know this about her story, but her husband had gone off and he was fishing and they don't know what happened. He disappeared. Mm. They don't know if he fell over. Or, you know, what happened? They're gone. Well, especially with water. I think water is, it's very easy to disappear around water. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Like Nate Burkus, you know, his partner was swept away during mm -hmm. the tsunami mm -hmm. and his body was never found. So I'm sorry that I'm taking us down this grim That's okay. conversation, yeah. but... But I mean, it's an interesting point because this book, you think, okay, that's one of the story arcs. Like, wasn't it incredibly sad? And it's like, no, actually it wasn't. And that's remarkable, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's question about it. And, you know, Tova wonders about it and thinks, I know she felt like she really knew her son. I know he didn't just try to leave or commit suicide. That's always the question, right? What did he commit suicide? Was there foul play? Those are usually the two questions. And that's explored, but not in a sad way here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I finished Manfields Park by Jane Austen, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Did not read it before as I had wondered <laughs> or assumed I did. So for those of you who don't know, this is Jane Austen's third novel that she published. And she published anonymously back then. In the very beginning, you have these three sisters who are all pretty well off. One of them marries for love. She marries below her station. She marries a sailor who ends up, I guess, getting injured and becoming kind of a drunkard and a layabout. So her life is not all that great. And she has all these kids. Because what else are you going to do if you're laying about? Sorry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so the other two sisters, one of them marries well and is happy. The other one is kind of, uh, that's Aunt Norris, who I mentioned in the last episode, who's kind of the villain type person who's just really mean as hell to Fanny. The sister who married the sailor who is now down on his luck, she decides to try to make amends with the family and have one of her children sent to do something with them because it was the son who's wanting to become a sailor. But instead, they decided to take the oldest daughter, which is Fanny. All of that is handled in just a couple paragraphs in the novel. So it's really poor little Fanny going up to live with a wealthy uncle and aunt. There are two daughters in the family and then two sons. So Fanny is a cousin to these four people. And Aunt Norris always wants them to remember that Fanny is less than. Mm. Whereas the other aunt and the uncle 
want her to be treated equally. And, you know, that classic Jane Austen where things are happening, where people are not really seeing what's happening, whether it's the relationships that are developing or not, whether it's somebody's character. In this case, the uncle doesn't even realize that Fanny never has a fire in her sitting room until he goes up to talk to her one day. And he's like, oh, where's your fire? And she's like, oh, I'm I'm quite comfortable. And he's like, well, you normally have one. And she kind of like, no. And, and he's kind of outraged by this treatment of her. And so I love that about Jane Austen, that you as the reader know what's going on, but you can see how it takes a while for some characters to come around and see things. So the main love story in this one is between Fanny and Edmund, the younger son, their cousins. So, ooh, in this day and age, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. And of course, there's a happy ending for most of the people, not everyone. There was a little bit of a dangerous liaisons vibe at one point. So you have these other people moving into the neighborhood. They are the daughter and the son of the man who's going to be living in the parsonage. And they are wealthy and spoiled and not the best people. So he wants to make all the girls fall in love with him, and then he leaves. So he breaks the heart of Fanny's two female cousins, and then he tries to work on Fanny, and she's really not having it. And the rest of the family's like, marry him. He's wealthy and he's a great guy, but she knows his real character. That's kind of the gist of it in some ways. Some people get a bit annoyed by Fanny because she is so pious and forgiving and doesn't speak up. And you kind of understand why she's a little unsure of herself with this upbringing that she's had. I kind of felt like Edmund was more the problematic character for me because he's the younger son. So he has really no money because the elder son has been pissing away their inheritance with his drinking and gambling and whatnot. But he's not upset about it. He's going to become, you know, a clergyman. That's what he's going to do and live happily ever after in some little cottage with his wife, whoever that's going to be. And I just feel like he doesn't see the woman who he's in love with, who's one of the bad siblings. He doesn't see it. But I guess we see what we want to see so often. And I think that is one of the age-old lessons that Jane Austen gives. Like love is blind. Yeah, that love is blind. But also, you know, you need to wake up because you do marry the wrong person, especially back then when divorce wasn't as common you're kind of trapped. Mm -hmm. You know, as a woman, you're trapped in so many ways, but you can possibly make a better life for yourself if you try to be clear-eyed about the people around you, which yeah. is really hard. Yeah. So slavery is mentioned in this book because the uncle owns plantations in Antigua, I believe it is. And the oldest son, Tom, travels with him and they're gone for a year there because there's some type of problem and they're trying to protect their money so they go. And at one point, Fanny asks a question of her uncle about slavery, but he doesn't answer the question. And I, Colleen and I had an interesting conversation just about, like, should she have gone into more depth about that? Because Jane Austen gets dinged for not talking more about slavery. But then we are wondering, too, like, when you're writing for a contemporary audience, how much of what's going on in the world do you put in mm. to the point where it becomes like super obvious and almost a turnoff? I kind of think about issues of homophobia or racism in today. In today's fiction, like you don't necessarily have to beat the reader over the head with it. You right. can just say a sentence or two and they know what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I watched a movie adaptation that took the issue of slavery and really highlighted it. 
It was the 1999 adaptation by Patricia Rosimo. So like I said, she highlights that issue of slavery. And I did like what she did with the character of Tom, the older brother. He goes with his dad and he sees the horrific treatment of the enslaved people. He sees that treatment and the rape that happens. He actually has a sketchbook where he sketches these scenes that he sees So in some ways, he becomes a more sympathetic character because you think this is what this man is seeing, and he sees the true nature of his father. So no wonder he's drinking and has a threat of disobedience in his life with his father. So the adaptation followed some of the things of the novel, but not everything. So I would say it's more inspired by the novel. It's not like a faithful adaptation. But it was really good, I thought. I didn't know what to expect, but I did enjoy it. Wow. I know I just talked a lot about Mansfield Park. It doesn't come up often on people's number one favorite Jane Austen novel. And I didn't have the urge to reread it again immediately like I do sometimes with a classic. I'm glad I read it. And it might be in my top four Jane Austen novels, Mm. but I'm not really sure. I'd have to sit and think about that. I read it in part two. It qualifies for Sue's Big Book Summer Reading Challenge. Right on. Yeah. And I haven't read a ton of criticism about the novel yet. I I do want to do that a little bit more. I really wanted to experience the characters by myself at first. But one of the things, I guess, that character of Tom again, who is really kind of a minor character, one scholar has speculated that he could be gay, that that could be part of what's going on with the drinking and his love of theater and his friend, Mr. Yates, that it could possibly be a nod towards a gay man. Because there is some nautical sailor homosexual joking going on at an earlier point in the novel with a different character. Anyway, Mansfield Park, Jane Austen. Glad I read it. Congratulations. <laughs> so the other book I read was The Battle of Little Bighorn by Marie Sandoz. I love this book. It's a short book. As I'm holding it up for Emily to see. This is a second edition. It's from University of Nebraska Press. Sandos was the Nebraska writer. And this came out in 1966. It was her last book. She's a really well-regarded historian, also novelist, biographer. She had the help of her niece with this book because she was being treated for cancer and pretty much writing, knowing it was the end of her life. So it was a real push to finish this one. And a lot of people wanted her to write it because she was so knowledgeable about this battle. For those of you who don't know, this is the one where Custer and all his men died in the battle. So this is a really brief account of that battle, of the two days. It's more focused on Custer and like what was going on with him. Because I didn't really know that much about him. I think as a kid, I was taught that he was kind of like a hero. You know, Custer's last stand, you know, the horrible Indians murdered him and all his men when, as we know, they were the aggressors. And Custer, I find out, wasn't even supposed to be engaging anyone in battle. He was supposed to be just doing some scouting and doing recon. So he disobeyed orders, for one. He also was there to try and win a big battle to get his name put forward as a presidential candidate. He had ambitions for that for a long time. The Democratic National Convention was going to be starting in a matter of days, and he was thinking, like, how great would it be 
to have it announced at the beginning of that, I won this major battle. So as part of this, he split his forces into three different groups. And one of the theories is he did that so that he could get all the glory. But what happens was those groups get slaughtered, except for one, which was commanded by a man named Reno. Uh, They survived some of them. Horrific. It's really horrific. It reminded me of the Killer Angels, which is about the Battle of Gettysburg by Jeff Shar, I believe. Really awful situation. But I like this book because it was pretty stripped down and straightforward. And this is new to me, too. There were indigenous women in this battle, two of them. And one of them, Sandos just makes a mention of her that one of the young women swooped up a man who was down. And so she swoops him up and takes him away. But then I was starting to do a little bit of research on who was this woman. And apparently since this book came out, according to Cheyenne Lore, that has been passed down and now it made public since I guess this book came out. The woman was Buffalo Calf Road Woman, and she's actually credited with killing Custer. I guess there were eyewitness accounts who saw her bludgeon him and pull him off the horse and take his saber and kill him. So I want to look into that a little bit more. There was also another uh, warrior named Pretty Nose who fought there as well. She was an Arapaho chief. So I look forward to learning more about them. And I wanted to read two paragraphs, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. So this is at the very end. And this is Sandoz writing. She says, The Indian wars on the plains differed from the usual military conflict, whether civil or between nations, in most aspects except one. As always, there were people who did not consider the warring inevitable. This time they could point to Canada, who took over her entire region without one battle with her Indians by the simple expedient of keeping her treaties. If more territory was to be appropriated from the natives, New treaties were negotiated without subterfuge, force, or coercion. The United States broke most of her treaties before the ink on the Indians' axes were dry. The situation on the plains was complicated by the wholesale destruction of the buffalo, the commissary of the Indians. Because the great herds on Indian lands were not only his sustenance and his religion, but ethically, at least, his property, his anger was understandable. In the meantime, the land hungry pushed in for homes, the cattle for grass, the gold seekers for treasure. Then in the early 1870s, the Depression dried up the financing of railroads headed into the West in Indian country through Kansas and the Dakotas. It was hoped that new gold strikes and railway access to old ones would lure reluctant investors. Besides, since the Civil War, There were further intensification of the only remaining field of conflict, the rivalry for officerships in the shrinking army and the necessity to keep the Indians stirred up, not only for war profits for manufacturers and contractors, but to advance the careers of the military. Mm. And I wrote next to that, damn, this is bleak, (laughs) you know, because so much of the mythology that we hear about the West and the indigenous people in this country. It's just so much myth. And Mm -hmm. then here she's boiling it down to like, the military is downsizing because the Civil War is over. And these military guys are still fighting for promotions Mm -hmm. to line their own pockets, or in the case of Custer, to become president. Greed. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Greed Ugh. and fear, I think, of what's going to become of them. Yeah. Greed and fear. And then, but then, you know, the difference she makes between Canada and mm-hmm. we all know Canada has its own problems, mm-hmm. I know, but just that difference there mm-hmm. yeah. and how things have been handled was pretty striking. So again, that was The Battle of Little Bighorn by Marie Sandoz. So we went on some Biblio adventures. We sure did. We had a great day together. We We did. A joint jaunt. This is something Chris has been talking about wanting to do, is go visit all three of the Toadstool bookshops in New Hampshire. They're for sale, so there's Mm -hmm. some worry as to what's going to happen with them. So we got the opportunity. We checked our calendars and found a day that worked. It was last Friday. Chris put together literally a minute-by-minute email schedule that we followed pretty well, including leaving at seven in the morning. Yes, we did. We did a good job with that schedule. I gave us 15 minutes of browsing time in each door, plus 15 minutes for pictures or to recap or to talk about things or just to have a little extra time. I know in one bookstore, I think we were there an hour and that was towards the end. You could tell we were kind of tired. <laughs> or maybe we just knew like, okay, we're on schedule. We would right. check when we got back in the car, like, wow, look at us. Yes. And we did stop at different places that we didn't anticipate. So I had been to the Peterborough Toadsel Books shop before. When I saw that they were for sale, I was like, oh, you know, you just never know what's going to happen with that kind of situation. And as Emily noticed, they're all on the same highway. Right. That goes east to west across New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. So we started by going up to Nashua, New Hampshire. We had to choose one end to start on. So we decided to do that. That one is located in a strip mall. Mm -hmm. It was really easy to get to. The store was really nice. I mean, it was bright, good sunlight. You walked in and it's just like a big, long square. Yeah, like a rectangle. Rectangle. Yeah. yeah. And uh, really nicely laid out. They had good sidelines, cards. They had wonderful cards, actually. And some gifties. I, I did buy some gifts. That's one of the things, like, you know, when you have so many books at home that you haven't read that you are looking forward to getting, sometimes buying more books for yourself can be a challenge. So buying gifts is what I've been doing when I visit a bookstore that I really want to get to. So I have some early gifts. And then they had a little section of used books that were more vintage than your typical recently read type book. Right. Is that where you found that one that you were talking about? No. no? Okay. Mm-mm. Well, and one of our listeners, Katie, had put out on the interwebs, hey, while you're driving, can you listen to the book Entangled Life, which is a book about mushrooms? And we didn't do that, Katie, because we just yammer to each other the whole time we're in the car together. We don't listen to things. But I did purchase that book at that bookstore in Nashua. Mm -hmm. So it's in my hands and I'm looking forward to reading it. That's so funny because the the first time we went somewhere together out of state, we went to Edith Wharton's house up in Massachusetts and you brought a book to read. And of course, we didn't crack the book at all. And so that's just been our pattern. We just talk the entire time. About books, you know, and life, et cetera. (laughs) So we were on schedule, got in the car, and the next stop was Peterborough, which is in the middle of the state. As Chris said, she had been there before. We were hungry at this point. So Chris had already sketched that out, too. We stopped at the Peterborough Diner, had a snack. And as we were pulling in, kind of rounding the corner, we saw the public library, 
and this big open sign, this flag in the wind and behind the library in a Victorian house that said, friends of the library used books. Yes. Which got our attention. It definitely did. So when I was there before, they were just talking about raising funds for a new section of the library because it's a beautiful old library, the front part of it. So now they have a very new, fancy, high-tech area of the library with meeting rooms. looks really lovely. And then right next to that is that quaint Victorian home. We'll post pictures of that. We haven't yet, but we will. And when I was there before, it wasn't open. So I was super psyched that it was open to get in there this time. Right. So we had our lunch, went to the bookstore, which had a huge used section. But we knew we knew we were in a little bit of trouble because I really wanted to go to the library and the library bookstore. So that didn't stop us from spending some time in that bookstore. I think we spent about 20 minutes there, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we did. Because I love that bookstore. I mean, it's big. It's a big bookstore, all one floor. But it's new. When you first walk in, they also have a really neat cafe. But then in the back, they have this really big used section with cool model planes hanging from the ceiling, which are fun to see. They're all military planes. It's got a good vibe. And the name of their cafe is Aesop's Tables, (laughs) which I think is hilarious. And I think if we go back, when we go back, I should say we'll probably try to eat there. The diner was ho-hum. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the first time I went to the diner, it was pretty good. That's why I thought it would be good to go back. But yeah, it didn't knock our socks off this time. But it was kind of, you know, good that we ate because when we walked into that Peterborough Toadstool books, we were just greeted by a wall of the smell of bacon cooking. Yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, that's a whole other thing. But then we purchased our books, went over to the library, which was beautiful. I would love to go there and work someday. And then I did really well at the Friends bookstore. That's actually where I found Remarkably Bright Creatures, which I had been looking for and hard to get from the library. And there it was, brand new, $2. (laughs) So every book in that Friends sale was $2. So I came out with a stack. She was so happy. We kind (laughs) of tag teamed the situation. Like, I don't know why, but you went to the library first I went to the sale and then we kind of like tag teamed. Who knows? I think I had to go to the bathroom. Maybe that, yeah. (laughs) But she came skipping out of there with this stack of books with this huge smile on her face. Yeah, I got some great books. Yeah. And And we we posted a video too on our socials from their courtyard in the back, which is lovely. I meant to look up the name of the river that flows right next to this wonderful reading area that they have. Yeah. But look at our social media. We have a video up and would be a really nice place to sit and read and hang out with a book that you buy from either the bookstore or the used bookstore from the library. <laughs> so then we hopped back in the car and went to Keene, New Hampshire to go to the third Toadstool Books. Yes. And on the way, we did have a little sidetrack going through the town of Dublin, New Hampshire. We were really caught by the library, this gorgeous library built in 1900. It wasn't open yet. They opened at 3 p.m. that day, but we walked around it and peeked in the windows. And then across the street was the publisher for Yankee Magazine. So that was fun to see that as well. Yeah, they published the Farmer's Almanac, Mm -hmm. we discovered. Yeah, and then the bookstore in Keene, it looked a little bit more like um, 
kind of like a typical college town bookstore is how I would describe it. Keen does have a couple colleges there. And that had a huge used section as well, but looked a lot different than the other store. It did, yeah. For this one, when you walked in, the used was right there. And then you walk through that in the back were all the new books, um, but really big. Now, they did trick us because there was a sign outside, I think, that said, we buy textbooks. Mm. So we both were kind of licking our chops like, ooh, there's going to be one of those textbook sections we get to walk through and droll. And then there wasn't, no. so, which yeah. was fine. I wonder if that's more of an online business for the, oh, who knows? Could be. I don't know. There but, was yeah. still plenty to look at. Yeah, there was. So, and then we got a couple beverages and hopped back in the car and drove home. Yeah. So 350 miles, just over, I think. Right. We got home before seven. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I told the gentleman caller that we gave ourselves 15 minutes per bookstore, he was like, that's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) He can spend 15 minutes barely through the front door. But we were on a mission. We wanted to see them all. It was more about that. Yeah, and we each had different authors or books we were looking for. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was on a mission, Laura had asked me to get a couple Nancy Drew books, you know, vintage for her play that's being produced next month, Magpie. And she wanted to have a couple on set. And surprisingly, it was hard to find the vintage ones. I found only one. What they had were the newer ones that have the shiny finish on them. Right. So I did have one of those. First stage prop I've ever purchased, knowingly. (laughs) It was a very good day. We posted a lot of pictures on social media, so feel free to scroll back through and look at that. It was last Friday. Yeah, I'm so glad that we did that. That was fun. That was kind of like my last hurrah this summer, I think, before classes start up again. Right, yeah. I had a virtual couch biblio adventure where I watched Elizabeth Strout, the author of many things, including the two books I talked about, Oh, William and Lucy by the Sea. She was in conversation with Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, who's the author of The Nest. And this was an event co-sponsored by Harvard Bookstore, Politics and Prose, and Books and Books. Sometimes when two authors speak, you can get a little inside baseball. But this didn't happen at all. You could see that Cynthia was a huge fan of Elizabeth Strout's. They talked about her precise writing, like in O. Williams, she uses a lot of colons. It's really interesting. She'd be like, so let me tell you, colon, or what I meant to say, colon. One of the things that Elizabeth Strout talked about is when she first started writing, her kids were little. And so she learned to just write in scenes. You know, like I'm at ballet class waiting for the kids to come out. I'm in the car. I'm just going to write a scene. And then what she learned is you can really just write in scenes. You don't necessarily have to piece them all together. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Write the transitions and stuff. So that was very interesting to think about as I was reading these books. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, she writes in scenes. She talks about how she just is constantly watching people, watching their eyes, watching what they wear, making up stories about them. And you can see all of that in her writing, too. It was a really fun conversation. They both were talking about Lucy like she was a real person, which I thought was really fascinating, and how she grew up with all these deficits. And a lot of her life is spent trying to fill in and handle yourself out in the world with those deficits and as a mother and raising children and 
all of that. So I really enjoyed it. It was a conversation specifically about O. William because Lucy by the Sea, you know, isn't out yet in the real world. So (laughs) I find it really interesting that they're calling it a series because series used to be a word applied only to genre fiction. And Mm. I think maybe a lot of the divides are, are breaking down in some respects, not everywhere. I know there's still some people who have firm lines drawn in the sand between genre and literary fiction. But it is interesting that that word is being used to describe a literary run of books. Yeah, and I'm not sure Elizabeth Strout would call it a series. I mean, that's how it's referred to on Goodreads. Mm -hmm. She's famous for Olive Kittredge, which is this connected short stories I'm not sure those were as popular until Olive Kittredge popped up and there'd be a short story where Olive just says hello. Mm -hmm. There she is. And this happened. I meant to say Olive appears in Lucy by the Sea. (laughs) You know, but again, the same way, just really slightly. And you're like, oh, there's Olive. As one of my girlfriends used to say with Olive Kittredge, it was like, where's Waldo? Because, you know, Olive's going to pop up. Right. So I think this is a series in air quotes in the sense of Lucy is the main character in all of them. Mm-hmm. Another thing that Elizabeth Strout talked about is she wasn't even going to write a story from William's perspective. But when she was at a rehearsal for My Name is Lucy Barton with Laura Linney, at one point, Laura Linney's just kind of walking around on the stage and she's mumbling to herself as she's trying to think about the character, get in the headset of the character. And she goes, Oh, William. And Elizabeth Strout was like, Oh, William, of course, William, what's going on with William? And she wrote a whole book about William. Oh, that's fascinating. Right? Yeah. And she talks about that with Olive again. She never expected to write about Olive Kittredge again. And then she was at some restaurant and she looks out the window and she just got this whole picture in her head of Olive getting out of a car. And that's where Olive again starts. So characters really do come to her or ideas come to her because of she's an observer and the things people say and do. Yeah. So getting back to your original thing, I don't know that she would refer to it as a series. I think it's just the characters continue to appear. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be interesting to do research about these words because there's the trilogy. Mm -hmm. I think the trilogy is something that may have been applied to more literary works. I'm making that up Mm -hmm. off the top of my head and tetralogies and all Mm -hmm. that kind of thing instead of calling something a series. I don't know. Well, and sometimes I think an author does have it sketched out. They know this is going to be a trilogy or sometimes I'm even curious, like, did they actually come to the publisher and have a 2000 page book? And they were like, yeah, we're going to split this up into three. Yeah. I've I've heard that happen. Yeah. I've heard of that happening, but yeah, I guess so much of it is marketing in some mm-hmm. ways. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's more connecting when it says Amgash series, Amgash number one, number two, number three, number four, which mm-hmm. is the case with these. I'm not sure if it's just Goodreads or some publisher's way of connecting them. It's not as if it says it on the book or anything like right, that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I know that happened with Willa Cather and the Prairie trilogy, which mm-hmm. is not something she ever said. And I had asked them about that. I was like, where did that come from? Because I never remember seeing that before. It's a more recent development. And they think it was a marketing thing. And then this experience with John Steinbeck, Sweet Thursday coming up is number two of Cannery Row, 
which I had never, I mean, for one, I'd never heard of the novel (laughs) to begin with. But that was kind of, I guess, a helpful thing that Goodreads did Mm -hmm. by connecting those two books in that way, or else I would have never made that connection, not knowing much about Steinbeck. Right. That's one of the books we were searching for, Sweet Thursday. We did not find it. We We both have Cannery Row in hand, but got to do some looking for Sweet Thursday or order it. Yeah, (laughs) right. We also had a joint jaunt that went afoul. Oh, yes. Our Jamie Ford adventure did not happen. Yeah, we got on the road and hit serious traffic. And then we got off on the by road that they recommended. And that was at a standstill because of the traffic on the highway. So we didn't make it. But Anne in Austin, one of our listeners, recommended a conversation with Jamie Ford and unbeknownst to her, she didn't know that this went south. So I ended up watching it. And it was um, with Friends in Fiction between Jason Mott and Jamie Ford. Friends in Fiction is a virtual conversation between four authors, Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harnmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan. And they invite authors on to speak with them. And so Anne, our listener, sent us this to say, hey, I know you were going to this Jamie Ford event, but I thought you might be interested in this conversation. Well, I was very interested because I loved Jamie Ford's book and was so sad we didn't get to see him. So Jason Mott is the author of Hell of a Book, which was the National Book Award for Fiction winner. And Jamie Ford, reminder, his book is The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. And it was a really interesting conversation. What they did was they brought Jamie Ford on, talked to him for a little while, then brought Jason Mott on, talked to him, and then they asked each other questions, which I thought was really interesting. And Jason Mott's book, Hell of a Book, is about... It's very meta. I haven't read it yet. It's about an author who's on book tour for his book. But then it's also very much about racism and being a black man in the United States. So Jamie Ford asked him a question about what it was like to go on book tour with this book, writing about what he was writing about and being a black man and then being a National Book Award winner. And, you know, did he get treated any differently? And it was a very compelling conversation. And then Jamie Ford talked about how he is a man of Chinese descent, but he can often pass for white because he's, I think it was his paternal side was Chinese and his maternal side was not. Yeah. He posted some cool stuff on social media that his grandfather was an actor and he posted some clips of him in different movies Oh, interesting. Right. So I'm pretty sure it's his paternal side. Yeah. Anyway, it was a great conversation. I won't go into more detail about it. It's available online. You can watch it. I'll put the link in the show notes. And thank you, Anne, for letting us know about that. Thank you, Anne. I look forward to watching that. Yeah. The thing around here is to go anywhere, (laughs) you have to get on 95. And when there's an accident, sometimes it does close. Yeah, and also it was at a library, and so libraries close early. They're not open late in the evening, and mm-hmm. it was a Friday. Yeah. And Friday where we live is everyone trying to get to Maine and Cape Cod, and so it was just a – we, we were sitting at a light trying to get off the highway, and we saw license plates from, like, five different states. Right, yeah. And then <laughs> so if you have to get off 95, you get onto Route 1, which is Boston Post Road, 
And that was a nightmare. And people were starting to have road rage. Yeah. And we're like, "Mm, maybe this is a sign that we should just go home. Yeah. It was sad because we had had a whole day planned. We were going to work at the library and it just didn't go well. It didn't go. Yeah. But thanks, Anne, for that. Yeah. Well, I've been doing some volunteer work again at the Coast Guard Academy Library Special Collections. They had a ton of donations over the summer. So I was helping them do some accessioning. And one of the collections was from a man who's passed away recently, and his son had donated a lot of his papers. And within this box that I was working on was one of those Armed Forces Service Editions that they put out during World War II of different classic literature for the soldiers to read. They were very cheap, pocket-sized editions. I came across one It was the Armed Services Edition for My Heart Keeps Up and Other Poems by William Wordsworth. And I was super excited to see this because I've read about these Armed Forces Editions. I've seen them in museum displays and stuff before, but to come across one like that was a lot of fun. So that title poem, My Heart Keeps Up, I thought I'd read that for everybody. And William Wordsworth, his dates were 1770 to 1850. The title is My Heart Keeps Up. It's also called The Rainbow Poem. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is father of the man. And I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. I know that the child is father of the man is a really often quoted idea and discussed about how our childhoods make us who we are as adults. And this poem is trying to say, like, don't lose that. Keep yourself, all your parts together and revere them. Beautiful. Yeah, that was fun. And other Biblio adventures, I went to the Institute Library here in New Haven for the first time the other day since the pandemic started. I used to volunteer there, and I've been a member there. And I went to check out if they had any novels by Elizabeth Jordan, because my friend Sherry Harris is working on a biography of Jordan. And Sherry's a former professor that I had, who was the one who got me hooked on early American women writers. So I went and I searched and I found that they had three because their collection is not online, all of it. Some of it is. One of the books I picked up was Young Mr. X. And I just thought, I'm just going to read a few pages just to get a sense. I got hooked Mm -hmm. and I ended up checking the book out. It's about a young woman named Penelope who is a sophomore at Smith College. And again, it was published in 1933, So it's of that period. But Sherry has said that Jordan was super popular in her day. And as I'm showing Emily, you can see all the checkout dates because they have the old cards. And then the the slip that goes into that card holder was also heavily stamped with checkouts. The deal is, from what I can figure, is it's during a break. Penelope's parents have gone away for vacation, and she decides to stay at their house overnight to pick up a notebook that she and her friend are going to be looking at. And she wakes up to hear footsteps downstairs. Mm -hmm. But I just, I just kind of liked her attitude and her voice. So more to come on young Mr. X. It was just really nice to be back at the Institute library and see people I haven't seen in a long time and talk about books. Nice. Yeah. 
So, Chris, do you have any upcoming jaunts? You know what? I There is one that is really tempting me. I don't think I can do this. The Newberry Library in Chicago just put out their fall courses, and they have one called Contemporary Native American Detective Fiction. Mm. Uh, I saw that. I was like, what? So it's a six-session course. It meets on Wednesdays, October 5th to November 9th. But, you know, I'm going to be into my own courses. I don't think I could do this. But I was looking at the reading list, and Marcy Rendon, who we got to meet at that Soho dinner a couple months ago, her book Murder on the Red River is one of them. What I like about the Newberry classes, and I've taken classes with them in the past, it's one of my favorite places in Chicago. They have wonderful experts who usually know how to teach and discuss literature and books and history. So I really recommend all of the classes there. We'll put a link to the show notes and the reading list on this. They often have pre-reading to do for classes. So that first day when you show up, you're starting right away. So again, we'll put the link in the show notes to this class. And there's a fee. It's $235 or $210 if you're a member, a senior, or a student. They are well worth the costs. What about you? Well, I have one, sadly, I can't go to, but I want to tell people about it, especially if you're local. I'm heading out of town for a wedding, but on September 10th at Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut, Debbie Machico Florence, the author of Sweet and Sour, who we got to talk to with Andrea Wang, her book is finally coming out. It was supposed to come out in July, and it was delayed because of publishing kerfuffles. It's coming out on September 6th, but... The release book party at Mystic is September 10th at 3 o'clock. And if you purchase a copy of the book and take your receipt to the Drawbridge Ice Cream Shop, which is right by the bridge in Mystic, you get your ice cream for half off. And that's kind of a nod to the cover has the kids eating ice cream. She talks about that ice cream shop, and it's all Mystic, everything Mystic. Would so love to go and cheer on Debbie for this book launch. But if you can go, I think you'd have a great time. It's going to be right in Mystic. You yeah, know, so. such a great place to go. Well, yeah. I won't be able to attend that one either because that weekend is the world premiere of Laura's play Magpie, which is going to be September 9th, 10th, and 11th at Drama Works Theater in Old Saybrook. Magpie is a fantastic play, I think. It's the one uh, we've talked about in the past. It was published during the pandemic. A publisher read it and reached out to her and said, I'd like to publish it. So um, super exciting that we're going to see these characters on stage. Buy tickets, (laughs) go to the show. I'm very, very sad that I rarely have social engagements, especially on the weekend. And I'm going out of town to go to a wedding, so I cannot go see it. Yeah. I'm so sad. Yeah, bummed. But yeah, yeah, so it's in Old Saber, Connecticut, September 9th, 10th, 11th. And yeah, tickets are available online now. And if you're in the area, I hope you can make it. There'll be one book cougar there. Yeah. And if you want to read the play, we can put the link to the publisher so you can purchase a copy yeah, of the yeah. play. Great idea. Yay, Laura. <laughs> so upcoming reads... We have The Seat Keeper, our read-along. It's time to get cracking on that. Our Zoom conversation is September 18th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We still have a few slots. Email us, bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to join in. And then we're going to be talking to Diane Wilson, the author, 
Very exciting. That will be episode 165, which drops on September 27th. So if you have any questions, get them to us by September 19th. Yeah. And these are questions for the author. Right. If you have any questions for her about this book or writing in general, we're happy to ask those questions for you. And just email us, bookcougars at gmail.com. One of our listeners reached out to tell me about a book called The Language of Food. They were like, Emily, Emily. And so I started to search and search and search. Long story short, I had a copy of this book because it's called something different in the United States. Oh, interesting. The Language of Foods is what it was called in the UK. But in the United States, it's been published as Miss Eliza's English Kitchen, a novel of Victorian cookery and friendship by Annabelle Abbs. And this is going to be one of my next up reads. It's historical fiction based on a true story. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, that is a big title change. Very big. Yeah. And even the publisher who had originally sent it to us was like, let me do some research. (laughs) And she came back and she said, no, that's the book I sent you already. And I was like, oh, sorry. Oh, wow. But we both learned because she couldn't remember that it had a different title. So, yeah. What about you? Well, I have ordered a copy of a book. I don't know when I'll get to read it, but it is about Buffalo Calf Road Woman, the woman who may have killed Custard. It's by Rosemary Aganito and Joseph Aganito. It was the winner of the Western Heritage Award for Outstanding Western Novels in 2005. So this is historical fiction around the Battle of Little Bighorn. Well, historical fiction, that's interesting. So I wonder if anyone knows for sure the true story. Well, I think some of it is debated. Some of it is based on oral interviews because I believe it was Pretty Nose, the other woman who fought in the battle. She lived to be 101 years old. That would have been into the 60s or 70s. So some of it is Native American tradition and they don't always share stories with outsiders. So who exactly knows? But I've already seen a couple different things that also some women went up to him afterwards and used knives or something and stabbed his ears um, so that next time in his next life, he would actually listen to them. Oh, yeah. So, but I don't know Mm -hmm. what is true or not. Um, So I will find out because I have a feeling I might be kind of obsessed now with this. (laughs) Kind of. We'll see. Which means y'all get to be obsessed too. We're along for the journey. Well, coming up next, we have a great conversation with the author Shelley Puhak, who wrote the book The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. We really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, what an interesting book. It's narrative nonfiction. It's storytelling in a true way that helps you understand history. It's not just a bunch of dates listed. It gives you context for what you're reading. Yeah, I mean, because so often history has a reputation for being dry. And as you know, David McCullough said, it's not a crime to write history that people actually want to read. So I'm going to read a section from early on in the book. This is from her author's note in the very beginning, talking about how she came to write this story Here we go. She's talking about Fredegund and Brunhild, the two queens. Both ruled longer than almost every king and Roman emperor who had preceded them. Fredegund was queen for 29 years and regent for 12 of those years, and Brunhild was queen for 46 years, regent for 17 of them. 
And these queens did much more than simply hang on to their thrones. They collaborated with foreign rulers, engaged in public works programs, and expanded their kingdom's territories. They did all this while shouldering the extreme burdens of queenship. Both were outsiders, marrying into a dynasty that barred women from inheriting the throne. Unable to claim power in their own names, they could only rule on behalf of a male relative. These male relatives were poisoned, stabbed, and disappeared at alarmingly high rates. A queen had to dodge assassins and employ some of her own, while also combating the open misogyny of her own advisors and nobles, the early medieval equivalent of doing it all backwards and in heels. (laughs) Which also shows you a little bit of Shelley's humor. I mean, there are definitely (laughs) laugh out loud moments. There's a lot of poison, murder, mayhem, all sorts of stuff. I'm going to read just a tiny bit from the end of the book, the epilogue that she calls Backlash. This is Shelley speaking of herself. As a girl, I gobbled up biographies of female historical figures, activists, writers, and artists, but few political leaders, and even fewer from so deep in the past. I don't know what it would have meant for me and for other little girls to have found Queen Fritigan's and Queen Brunhild's stories collected in the books I read, to discover that even in the darkest and most tumultuous of times, women can and did lead. Even though the Dark Queens were absent from my books, they were in plain sight throughout my childhood as the women I was warned against becoming. The wicked stepmother in my fairy tales, the haughty Jezebel who was preached against in church, the fat lady singing at the end of the opera, all were objects of hatred or ridicule between the silence of suppressed history and the oppressive blare of stereotypes, what space remains. But the ghosts of Brunhild and Fredegan refused to stay silent. They surfaced relentlessly, determined to be heard. Awesome. Enjoy our conversation with Shelley. We are thrilled to have this opportunity to talk with poet and writer Shelley Puhak about her first nonfiction book, The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World, which was published earlier this year by Bloomsbury. Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, and Kirkus called it a lively, well-researched history focused on powerful women, which we wholeheartedly agree with. It's a thrill. It really is. Shelley has also published two collections of poetry, Stalin in Aruba and Guinevere in Baltimore, and a third collection is coming out in October called Harbinger. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you for having me. Shelley, at the very beginning of the book, you talk about the concept damnatio memori, Mm -hmm. which means condemnation of memory. Can you talk about that concept and how it affected these two queens that you come to write about? What a great lead in. Thank you. I'm thinking especially of this um, one phrase that really encapsulates this for me is by a writer named Rebecca Hall, who has this great book, Wake the hidden history, I think it is, of women-led slave revolts. She says, if you believe something doesn't exist, you don't go looking for it. And worse, if you stumble upon it, you still can't see it. And I think that speaks right to your point, that if we believe there weren't powerful women in the past, that there isn't this scaffolding that we ourselves are building upon, you don't go looking for these women. And when you find them, when they're right in front of your face, you're completely unable to see them. So I think in this case, Once I really started researching Queen Brunhild and Queen Fredegan, you find traces of them everywhere. And this is 1400 years later, and they were hugely 
important, but there's this idea that because we've decided that they didn't exist, you know, that they've been kind of condemned to be forgotten, we make it so. I am just as guilty of that as I think anyone else. I had no idea that these two women existed and I stumbled across them completely by accident. So I was researching something completely different. There was this story about a Viking queen, Queen Estrid, and her mother, and this grudge match they had with the King of Norway. It's just this hugely involved grudge match, but it ends with the King of Norway committing suicide by jumping off of his ship and committing suicide by drowning in these icy waters while the queen is waving from, you know, from her boat. Uh, And I looked in this one source and they said, if you think this grudge match is amazing, you know, you should really think of the rivalry between Brunhild and Fredegund. Once I stumbled across them, I just couldn't believe I didn't know more. And that they're kind of like the best known secret, I think, in the medieval world. Oh, so fascinating. And, and that, that issue too, of how in ancient times, if you were a traitor or you'd fallen from grace, how they would take down your monuments or chip you out of carved reliefs. And there's even an emperor whose face was removed from a family representation. I mean, that's pretty intense. And I know at one point, too, you had talked about the transition from papyrus Mm -hmm. to more stable forms of writing vellum and things like that. Am I jumping into? No, no, that's great. Yeah, Yeah. So, I mean, all these things converged at this time. Can you talk a little bit about just resources, primary resources that you were able to track down? Well, what's really interesting is that surprisingly a lot more has survived than I had expected initially, but what has survived is estimated to be about 1% of what was produced. So if you think of the loss of, you know, written resources on that scale, that's kind of just staggering to think of what we don't have. And we have this sort of idea that there was all of this, writing and this, you know, culture in the, you know, ancient Roman world. And then suddenly Charlemagne just resurrects it out of nowhere. You know, like, where were they finding it? Like, how were they able to recopy these, these Greek and Roman texts if they weren't being preserved? So there's this sense that a lot was lost, but a lot was also, there's this like huge amount of continuity and a lot that is still being produced. But that said, it was still an incredible challenge I was able, thankfully, to rely on two eyewitness accounts. These two men who actually knew these queens were there for most of these events. Obviously, these men have their own biases, so you have to sort of sort through those. And then that I was able to supplement with a lot of accounts of their contemporaries. So there are other kings, popes, rulers who might not have met them face to face and are only corresponding with them, but they're able to tell you what the gossip is and a lot of their letters are preserved. We do have some letters from one of the queens herself, and we have some letters that were written to the other one. So we do get a little bit of a sense of their voices. And then, you know, a huge amount of it is chronicles that you're sifting through that were written at the very end of the queen's lives or or right after. But what's fascinating about these is you can see how these women are written out of history or how things are changed. And so that was really fascinating for me to be able to see like two versions of a manuscript that might be 20, 30 years apart. And you can see the additions or you can see the erasures and see how these stories are being rewritten in kind of real time. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So, so you set off to write a completely different story. 
And what you end up doing is getting captivated by these two queens, right? And and realizing like, oh, nobody knows anything about them. Let's change that. You wrote a book that's narrative nonfiction. I really want the listeners to understand that because we've talked about that on prior um, episodes of the podcast. So it's very accessible. You know, when I first opened it up, I kind of did it with one eye open because I'm not a student of history. So I was a little nervous. And I feel like if we learned history the way that you just wrote it as kids, we would understand it so much more instead of just spouting off dates and wars and men who captured women, et cetera. (laughs) So this is so much more accessible. So tell us a little bit about how you changed course and started to write about it and maybe just give the listeners a little more of an inkling of what the book's about. Sure. So this book essentially, you know, springs from a complete and utter failure. So, you know, the project I thought I was working on, that book completely blew up. But I think it's just to remind everybody that sometimes when it's happening, it feels awful and, and so demoralizing. And you wish you could see your future self or tell yourself, just just hang in there because the seeds of your next success are embedded in this failure. And you kind of just have to barrel through. You know, I came across this story talking to my agent saying, you know, somebody should really do something with this. And she was like, well, you could. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I kind of was like, well, but that's how I got started. And some things that really captured my imagination just to set the scene for you all is there was these like sort of eerie convergences for me personally in that the sixth century is not a time that I was really familiar with. And I don't think many people are because of the things we talked about, like the lack of sources. It's just not a really well-known dynasty. But At that time, like these two queens, to set the stage as children, they survived this horrific climate change where the temperature of the earth has changed two degrees, except it's two degrees colder instead of two degrees Celsius warmer. But that's something that we're we're dealing with. And the ramifications that has this sort of just sets off this endless chain reaction. And at the same time, there's the bubonic plague making the rounds, which is also just hugely destabilizing. So during this time period, we have all of this destruction and chaos, but we also have an immense amount of social mobility. So the people who are able to survive are able to really be creative about how they want to move forward. And oftentimes we have, I don't want to go so far as to say it's a meritocracy, but there's that sense that if you can prove that you're the most capable individual and that you can get a job done, people are less willing to look at things like your family background or your breeding and say, okay, we'll give it a shot. So on the cusp of this, we have Brunhild, who's born in Spain, and she is the second daughter of the Visigoth king. And because this king has no sons, He grooms his eldest daughter to be his heir and his youngest daughter to make a match, but they're both really well-educated. So that's something that I think is important for people to know. They get not just a tremendous classical education, but also a real political education from their mother, who we learn was also hugely influential on her husband and on his reign. At the same time, we have this enslaved girl named Fredegund, who sort of comes from nowhere. We don't know much about her, except we know that you know she was lowborn. She was not from a noble background or a, or a very wealthy background. It seems to have been an orphan. And she has become the concubine of a Frankish king. And so around um, this time, these two women are going to become sisters-in-law. 
by eventually both marrying two Frankish brothers who are ruling in, we might say roughly what is now France, Germany, the Netherlands, you know, Switzerland, this huge Frankish empire. And so they're going to become sisters-in-law under these very unusual circumstances, and they're going to become political rivals and essentially spend the bulk of their lives jockeying with one another for power. Yeah, and Farragut is such an example of like being wily and smart and how, you know, you can, if you listen well, you can really position yourself. And maybe if you can commit murder too, it's hard to say. (laughs) Yes, cold-blooded, but also very clever. And one thing I find so fascinating about her is that she's also literate, which is not something I would have expected. Right. And not just in Frankish, her native language, but also Latin. Yeah, that's amazing to me. Mm -hmm. Just blew my mind. Yeah. Well, like I said, wily and smart, you know, know what's important to position yourself well. Yeah. Well, I'm amazed too. Like you mentioned that in the book that subsequent historians then kind of downplayed that they were just short reigned and had these tiny little kingdoms. But as you just said, these the huge chunk of land um, that these kingdoms covered, and then their reigns were very significant. You mentioned that they ruled longer than most of the previous kings and emperors. So it's just really striking how much they were erased then. And at the same time, you also mentioned that this is about the time that the Bible, as we know it, was coming together. Books were being tossed out. They were deciding what was going to be included. There are all these different Christian sects. And there was also the clampdown on same-sex relationships, and it seems to be solidifying heterosexuality as the norm, and then also sex within marriages of priests. Wow, like so much is going on at this time. Yeah, can you just talk a little bit about those kind of social streams that were going on at that time? Sure. I mean, I have this idea, and I was raised Catholic, of the church kind of, it it sort of was small, but it sprung fully formed into this institution. And we aren't usually privy to the sort of negotiations that are going on in the back rooms about what are we going to do? I mean, right before these two queens, one thing I found fascinating is, you know, women are still deacons. They're still able to participate in the mass. And there's these church councils back and forth, like, should we let women still do this, then somebody bans them, but then somebody else is still allowing women in. So there's this huge question as to, you know, can women have a role in the leadership of the church and they're being forced out? And at the same time that women are being forced out, you have this clamp down on sexuality, as you say, you know, particularly on monks can't share beds. They don't, you know, really clamp down on the nuns quite yet. Um, But also there was this sense that the church is consolidating resources. So up to this point, a lot of men would become bishops or priests going to the priesthood as a sort of a retirement gig. So you've served as a soldier, you've served as a noble, and you want to sort of repent of maybe all the things you've done in your life. You're done carousing with the village women. You're going to go become a priest. But oftentimes they already have a wife. They might already have a mistress too. You have children. So you're coming in with all of these resources. And the church was initially fine with that. You know, the criteria was, are you a true believer? Are you willing to behave in certain ways? And at first they said, it's fine to be married. And in fact, you can even be having sex with your wife, but you can't do it on certain days. So, you know, Lent, no sex or before big holidays. And then they started to realize, you know, as a lot of these priests are begetting children, they're leaving their worldly goods to their children 
and not to the church. And so they say, we don't want to condone divorce. You can't divorce your wives, but you just can't sleep with them anymore. So you have to live with your wife as a sister. And you can imagine this isn't a really popular directive. (laughs) Um, And there inevitably are slips. So the church is really cracking down on this. I mean, they are going village to village and having people sort of ferret out who might still be sleeping with their wife and excommunicating them. The church is really getting increasingly involved in people's personal lives. But it wasn't always this way. I mean, this idea that people are sort of outraged and there's a lot of negotiation going back and forth. And there's even a point where the royal family is like, wait, you need us too? Because then, you know, what they're imposing upon priests, then they also want to be imposing on nobles and on the royal family. And that obviously does not go over very well. Well, I mean, that is so fascinating because like I always thought it was St. Augustine, like way back when that started the whole celibacy movement. And then you think about more recent popes who have been saying, well, homosexuality is fine as long as you don't have sex. So there's that precedent, like way back when, you know, right. really mind blowing. Yeah, I know. And and of course, it was kind of about greed, right? It was about we need the money to come to the church and not to your offspring. Like that had never occurred to me. So thank you for that little tidbit, lots of tidbit, not little. <laughs> so can we can we switch gears to poetry for a minute? Sure, good money. There's a part of the book where you talk about, and again, I don't know how to say this in Latin, but the poem on the destruction of Thuringia. Uh This is a poem, and there's a character that runs throughout the book, Fortunatus, who is a poet and also kind of a scribe, right? I mean, he, he helps communicate for the royal family and others. And there's some question about who wrote this poem. Was it Fortunatus or was it Radigund, I think was her name? Did you, you got to read this poem, right? You you could read it in the original manuscript, you know, illuminated manuscript, but also then in, you know, there's, there's multiple translations of it as well, which is pretty So how did poetry, I mean, you're a poet yourself, but how did the discovery of poetry and Fortunatus' writings affect your being able to tell this story? What a great question. I think, um, you know, I don't know that I've spent as much time thinking about that as perhaps I should, because I feel like I'm this interloper, this person on the sidelines, you know, watching the story unfold and trying to relay it to other people. And that's essentially what Fortunatus was doing as well. So there is that sort of uncanny parallel. And he's really a fascinating character too, because a lot of his poetry and a lot of the snippets you get in the book are, you know, he's being hired by royal families or nobles to essentially praise them. So, you know, it's a poem about how beautiful your wife is and what an amazing ruler you are and how, you know, like amazing your lands are and how plentiful your vineyards are. But he also has, we call it like quieter, more personal poetry. And he really struck me almost as like a Mary Oliver, where it's Mm. completely different in tone, very spare and observational. And it focuses on like the quality of light, you know, as, as the sun is setting or, what some fresh cream looks like, like these, just like these little pleasures of flowers blooming and just gratitude for, for, I guess, everyone he's in community with and particularly with nature. And it's a, it's a pretty small circle, but so it was really interesting seeing both the public and the private persona of this poet, but it was also interesting to me, like one thing as a poet that really struck me was when we have one of the Kings 
initially Fredegan's husband, you know, who takes to writing poetry and he wants Fortunatus and other poets to say, you know, he's just great. And they're going, this is, this is terrible. Like, this is really bad. <laughs> and then to be able to go back and read the King's poem. And I was wondering, well, is it bad? Or, you know, they just don't like him. He's not a very nice man. And it was really bad. Um, <laughs> so there was something as being, being able to bring my poet hat to, to that investigation and say, I want to look at this poem and see what they're talking about and, and see if I can sort of trust their judgments here. And as I said, it, it was a terrible, terrible poem. And it really gave me a better sense of that character as well. He's an aging king. He's feeling increasingly powerless. And he decides he's going to you know, write these poems and sort of conquer the cultural world, take it by storm. And they're just awful. And, and you have that sense of almost kind of pity for this floundering man who's seeking comfort where he can find it, even though he's not a terribly sympathetic character. Or a good poet, apparently. <laughs> wow. Well, good to know the literary crowd is as tough as they were back then. You know, <laughs> can't pass off bad poetry. <laughs> well, I just think it's so interesting, too, because I think of characters like Fortunatus, like he's one of the ones that, you know, you can look to and he was there and witnessing the lives of these two queens that are largely written out of history. But also his life, I mean, he was kind of pushed and pulled by them as well and wanting to represent them well. And, you know, all of the brothers who weren't getting along, you know, like come to my wedding and say nice things about my bride, you know. And, you know, I kind of wondered, like, how did he, you know, was he ever fearful of his life? And Absolutely. Not, yes. Yeah, not pleasing the right people and saying the right thing. And, you the know, stakes are a lot higher for him than they are for me. You know, I'm going to get maybe laughed at, but, you know, he might have been beheaded. So it does really up the pressure. Yeah, it's a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. So much murder intrigue. So much murder in this book. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it makes me feel really happy to be in a democracy and to keep working to keep our democracy strong, get it stronger. Now, to turn the conversation in an even different direction, would you be willing to talk a little bit about what your writing process is? Because I imagine it was very different from poetry to writing this narrative nonfiction. What was your process like for this book? So I think I'm someone who, no matter what the genre might be, kind of writes big and expansive and messy and it's all over the place and then pairs down, whether it's a poem or whether in this case, it's, you know, this big sprawling book. Initially, it looked like gathering just just tons of sources and I should really be more organized than I am but you know it's just just everywhere um and compiling and compiling and kind of going through and looking for those perfect telling details that really encapsulate because I'm writing narrative nonfiction versus for example like a history textbook that really seem to encapsulate or summarize someone's character or you know a particular movement like these sort of details about things the church was doing for its crackdown, for example, or details about a particular epidemic that might convey exactly how brutal it was for the everyday person. So initially it was kind of like cast a wide net, winnow it down. And then I had to go to the experts. So um, I've written a lot of nonfiction where I've dealt with like magazine fact checkers, but when you're publishing a book like this, really wanted to make sure to get it right. So I ended up having the entire book fact-checked by essentially, you know, an expert in this, you know, medieval field, but that was a great experience for me. 
being able to kind of converse with a lot of these scholars and have them point out sources that I might have overlooked and being able to sort of debate some of these interpretations. There are a lot of things that are there, but if you delve underneath the surface, for example, there are a few instances where there's history that's being told, but then if you look at it, for example, through the lens of a woman's life and you go, okay, but what was happening, you know, biologically or physically with this woman at that time? And you go, oh, you know what? She's, she's pregnant when this is happening. And that might cast an entirely different light onto it. Or she just miscarried. And then she issues this missive that had been completely ignored, but, you know, seemed pretty evident that when you can write that back in the narrative, that that connected some of the dots as, as far as why the Queens might've been motivated to do certain things at certain times. Various chroniclers of their era were like, well, I don't know why she's doing this. And then having a lot of translators double check the Latin and double check in some cases, you know, like the French or the German. So it would go through several rounds and then it would kind of be me winnowing it down again and then sending it back out to experts who would kind of go through it and we'd bounce off various theories or ideas for some of the things that we weren't hundred percent sure on and then winnowing it down. So I might not be describing the process very well, but I feel like it's like huge and expansive and then it's a narrowing and then you, throw that net out again, and then you sort of pull it back in. So how long did it take you from beginning to end? I didn't know I was writing this, you know, when I started writing this, but when I went Mm. back and and looked, I think it was about five years. Mm. That's impressive. That's very cool. I mean, did you do this all through like Word documents or did you actually send manuscripts to people? A lot of it was electronically because the tail end of this was all during COVID. So I had Mm. finished my travel, like my travel in Europe, in the summer of 2019. And I was setting down to essentially, you know, get the first draft in order um, when COVID hit. And so a lot of the latter part of this, I'm absolutely indebted to librarians. I mean, they are just amazing. And the things that people were able to get for me during a pandemic with everything being closed down, these like obscure networks, they're just some of the most resourceful people you will ever meet. <laughs> so <laughs> um, a lot of this that was done like electronically and by you know, a friend of a friend who knew someone who knew someone who, you know, could take a picture of a manuscript and, and send it to someone else, um, which probably were not during a pandemic, you know, might have might have been gone a little differently. But I think the end result would have been close to the same. Yeah. So fortuitous that you were able to do all your traveling before. I had no idea. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a leading question, but I don't really mean it to be leading. I do want you to answer it in the context of the book. But what do you think of witches and the dark arts? And how much of that do you think impacted these two queens place in history? That is a great question. And I think as we were talking earlier about so many things being decided in the church at this time or things that impact us today, this concept of witchcraft, although we certainly have it in ancient Greek and Roman times, but as we know it, is being solidified in this time period too. I often see Fredegund has this particular crusade against these housewives in Paris, but it's listed in a lot of texts, academic and otherwise, as like one of the first witch hunts, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the sense that we understand them, but like European witch hunts, there certainly were witches or women who were persecuted, you know, for being witches and men who were persecuted for being sorcerers before this, but in the way that we understand them. But there is that sense that they're being cast as witches at the same time that medieval Europe is deciding what constitutes a witch. So there's that neat confluence. And it's also fascinating 
to me, I found it very fascinating that we have this entire echelon of society that saw no problem with going to mass on Sunday and consider themselves very devout, but would also hire, you know, a soothsayer or a fortune teller at the exact same time. And they didn't really see that discrepancy. Like there's an instance, one instance in the book where there's this nobleman who's in the church praying, deciding what he wants to do. And he sends for someone that we know later be considered a witch to come into the church and give him advice. And no one's saying, wait, I mean, if you think of that, just, you know, a couple hundred years later, that would be, that would be considered absolutely bonkers. So this idea that these old pagan beliefs could still exist in some form alongside the new Christian ones, and that people could just understand that as, well, of course, you know, of course you hire a witch to say a spell so you get a good job. But then I also think about how, you know, we kind of, even now today have those, I don't know about you two, but those little superstitions maybe. Uh, And if you think those are filtered down, maybe a thousand, 2000 years, we're still doing some of the exact same things that they were doing then. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. 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 Wow. Sure. Now, were there any really super cool things that you couldn't fit into the book that you still think about or wish could have been in there somehow? There were all of these side stories of these incredible women. I, one thing that I really enjoyed about this book was learning about the networks between women, because I think we so often tend to have a solitary woman or in this case, okay, there's these two women and their rivals, but the relationships between women and the networks they were able to form, that to me was just just amazing. And there were a lot of, I would say, maybe bid players or, or women that we didn't know that much about. So I didn't feel comfortable speculating too much and putting them in. But I thought, wow, that is a fascinating story. And it's someone's sister-in-law or someone's cousin. But you realize how many of these women were playing such an important and integral role in their society, the same way as, you know, essentially, obviously, much higher bar, many different, you know, many different challenges. But that sense we have that we're so progressive. And, you know, we've, we've overcome so much. And there's this, quote, unquote, medieval way of thinking and this way that women were in medieval times, and we're so different from that. And that, to me, was just really refreshing to know, like, people have always resisted, but women have always had these networks. And when we have one powerful woman, she's not an anomaly. There are usually hundreds of other women on the periphery or, you know, behind her, supporting her that make that possible. Do you think any of them might show up in your next work? Right now I'm working on something. I'm terribly superstitious, speaking of witchcraft, but it jumps ahead a little bit in time. But there are quite a few women who I've had to put on the back burner, but I really hope to be able to come back to in some form or fashion because their stories were just so fascinating and so many women's fomenting rebellion and just being defiant and crafty. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, we really get a sense of their personality that I, um, I really hope I'm able to do something with all of them at one point. I felt very sad saying goodbye for now to a lot of these women. So I had to kind of promise myself it's not goodbye forever. It's just, just setting you aside for now. All right. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, Shelly. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Yeah, it was really great. Love the book. And um, thank you for making it so accessible to this history Frady cat over here. So appreciate it. 
Well, that is high praise. And that's exactly what I set out to do. So thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.